Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 118 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is May 19th, 2010. We've got a great show for you this week on the podcast. Lots to talk about. We're going to talk to uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. We'll talk to uscfootball.com recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. We'll get a lot of stuff on the team. We'll talk about the Lane Kiffin HBO special. We're going to talk to some recruiting and we'd love to answer your questions. If you have any questions or comments, drop us an email. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address. That's podcast at uscfootball.com. And we got a bunch of questions in this first segment with Coach Harvey Hyde, who lovely, he joins us each and every week. And we love that fact that he does. Coach, how are you doing? Ryan, it couldn't be better. It's a beautiful day uh, here. Just got back. I was a little late uh, getting on the air with you. I apologize, but I had to get my walk in and lift my weight. So that uh, I can maintain the same type and conditioned body you have. Every time I see you, <laughs> wherever you are, you're in shorts, looking good, tanned up. You always tell me you just got off the beach playing a little volleyball. <laughs> so I just try to, you know, maintain. You're trying to move forward. I just want to maintain, okay? <laughs> Very nice, Coach. You know, I actually almost went for a run this morning because I know you always work out before the show, but I got a lot of stuff to prepare, so I don't, I didn't get to do that, but I want to try and do that. I'll try to get out there like you, Coach, do a workout even before the show starts. You got to get it done, baby. Every day and every way, you try to get a little bit better and better. Yeah, well, you know, I'm 39 years old now, and being around these 19-year-old kids that practice who are in, like, ridiculous shape, it kind of inspires you sometimes, you know what I mean? You, uh, you want to get in there and, uh, and get, you know, I can't compete at that level, but you want to still try and stay in shape. You got to do it, buddy. If you take care of your body, uh, your body knows that you care about it, and it tries to take care of you. You wash your car when it gets dirty, don't you? Well, you care about your car, so you better care about yourself. If you don't care about yourself, no one else will. That's a very good point, Coach. I need to wash my car. That's what I'm going to take away from this conversation. But thank, <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, let's. I want to thank our seg- the uh, sponsor of our segment, Southern California Tickets, SCTickets.com. Thank you again for sponsoring us. If you need tickets for anything, concerts, sporting events, going to the theater, take your woman out. Uh, the Lakers playoffs are coming around. Uh, could, they could sweep again, but there is a game tonight. So, But sctickets.com, if you need tickets for anything, 1-800-888-7287 is their phone number. Check them out. Me and Coach do, so hopefully you will as well. I agree with you. It's a place to be. Uh, I'm watching my dog, Cece, dig around her bed here, and uh, I don't know. She might want to join the show today, so I want to warn everybody. She might need a segment, okay? No no problem. We actually have three. We were doing two segments the last couple weeks. We have three segments today, and uh, we're going to talk, like I said, to uh, Dan Weber. He got an advanced copy of the HBO special with Lane Kiffin. We got a lot of uh, recruiting uh, topics to talk about. With I was up at the Stanford Nike camp with Gerard Martinez, so we're going to talk about that a little later on the show. And we've got a bunch of team questions, Coach. So hopefully you can uh, tackle these and uh, go forward with that. Is that cool? Yeah, let's get started. All right. Well, Steve has a question. Uh, it's a follow up. He asked about the spring football attendance last week, and USC got about fifteen thousand. 
fans out for their spring game. They charge 10 bucks a head. That's kind of a typical attendance for USC. He appreciated the, the answers that we provided, but his question now is, what was the attendance at UCLA's final spring game? They are in the same metropolitan area with professional sports coverage, et cetera. So that would be a good benchmark. And I think the numbers I saw, Coach, correct me if I'm wrong, was like 12,000 or 12,500, which I think was more than their typical spring attendance. So there might be some renewed excitement over there in Westwood. Well, uh, yeah, it was around that. It was about the same size last year. I, I went to it, uh, had a chance to watch it and so on. And uh, the only difference is it's $10 to get a new USC spring game, and it's free. UCLA's is free, so uh, not that that would make a difference to people, but uh, there were more kids, I would say. I saw a lot of kids at the UCLA spring game uh, running around and so on, having fun, which they should be, but it was a free event, a family night more or less. Well, at SC, you have, I, I know I see kids, don't get me wrong, but I see more of the hardcore football fan at a USC spring game or a USC spring practice. So, but it was, it was, it was good. It was a beautiful evening there in the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl was all lit up. It was beautiful and so on. And, you know, the whole thing, I told you she wanted a segment. (laughs) And, uh, there was, uh, you know, it went about an hour and 20 minutes and, uh, had a chance to look at their new pistol offense, uh, which they ran in the spring, the same offense that Notre Dame runs and so on, or not Notre Dame, Nevada. University of Nevada at Reno, but I think they'll, I, I really think they're going to junk that. I just didn't see what they needed from that offense because it requires a quarterback to have great running ability. And right now, currently, they haven't recruited that type of quarterback. Uh, they say Dietrich Riley's going to play some wildcat for them and so on, but he's not the pure passer. He hadn't been a quarterback. He's been a running back and a defensive back. So I would be a bit surprised to see them go back to what their normal offense is. Okay, coach, that makes sense. And so as far as the attendance goes, I think, you know, like you said, having a free versus $10, I don't know if how much of a difference that's going to make. The other one I wanted to check out, I didn't get to find out the numbers for this, but the uh, Miami Hurricanes attendance, that would be a good number to have. Uh, we can look that up for you and try to check that out. But um, obviously they're in a major metropolitan area as well. And they have some of the same kind of circumstances surrounding uh, the USC spring game where you're in a professional sports town and spring football isn't, you know, a, a major event like it is in some of the other, uh, maybe, you know, a lot, especially a lot of the programs in the SEC, it becomes really a major event. And in LA, you know, it's kind of an afterthought almost. So it's a shame, but, you know, it's getting better. I, I don't think USC got the kind of attendance that they had you know, 10 years ago before Pete Carroll arrived, you wouldn't get 15,000 out for a spring game. So I think it's gotten better. And, you know, there's, there's still a lot of uh, upside there. You can get more attendance as well. Oh, I agree with you. And we discussed this uh, last week, so we don't want to get into it again. But, you know, uh, the space in, in the newspapers, uh, UCLA got less space than USC. And USC got hardly any space for spring practice. It's all Lakers, Dodgers, and so on right now in the media here. And that's why I said last week why this type of segment or this type of service that you provide uh, uh, the listeners are, is so great because you can have football year-round while the newspaper, the media, really doesn't have that. It was the NFL draft. It was uh, the mini camps. It's free agency. But you don't hear much, really, about even the verbal commits in the media. You don't even hear that, Harley, unless it's a special segment somewhere that somebody writes a column. 
But, uh, you know, verbal commits are going on right now. SC now has four. We were talking about it before the show. You'll talk about it probably later on during the uh, other segments you have uh, today. But, uh, you know, people like football, and, and they love it here in Southern California as much as in Alabama. Believe me, it's just the difference is Alabama is Alabama, and that's all there is in Alabama. So uh, it's Alabama-Auburn. And I, and I don't take that away from the solid Bama fans or Tiger fans because that's, they're born with that. Here people are born with that, but there are also other activities that they can really go to. And when football season gets serious here, people get serious here. When you average 90,000 people or whatever the Trojans have been averaging, that proves, or speaks for itself. Sure does, Coach. And I did uh, find the Miami Spring game. They don't actually hold it at the stadium. They have it at Traz Powell Stadium, which I'm not sure which one that is. I'll have to look that up as well. But they had a estimated capacity crowd of 10,000, according to the Miami website. So similar kind of thing. You're not going to get 90,000 people. Even when Miami was good uh, you know, and winning national champions and stuff, I think you had the same kind of thing going on where it's you're in a major metropolitan area. It's not the only game in town. So I think that, you know, looking at UCLA and Miami are probably pretty good benchmarks. And USC had higher attendance than both of those schools. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. Right. For... right. I mean, you know, when you look at it, I think the number one school that has the largest spring ball in the nation is Ohio State. I think they're number one. Michigan had 30,000. Ohio State and Nebraska, damn near sell out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and they, and they really do. I think they make that part of their season package. I really do. <laughs> the spring game. They, they pick that their spring game. So, you know, when you look at the different uh, things around the country, remember, you don't publicize the halftime score. You, you publicize the final score, okay? So if they have that many people at the spring game, that's great, okay? Yeah. It's great. It gives an excuse for people to do something and to get out and support people and so on. And, and they encourage people to come out and so on to the campus, and they probably – do a lot of other activities, you know, uh, class reunions and everything else tied around it. But it, it's football season. It's it's the season that counts. And I think, uh, you know, a football field's the same size no matter where it is. And it's not uh, the number of people that surround it that make things happen. It's the football field itself with the players and the coaches. All right. Well, thank you for that question, Steve. Let's get to our next topic. This one is from Lee. And Lee writes, uh, one preseason magazine I read before last season said that it would be a bit of a disappointment if Chris O'Dowd did not win the Remington Award as the country's best center. Now Coach Hyde is suggesting that Butch Lewis be moved to center. Has the coach given up on O'Dowd? Is O'Dowd proven to be less of a talent than he was thought before? Finally, why was Martinez moved to guard? Why is he not the backup center? So it's some center talk, Coach. I know you like talking about the offensive line. Maybe you can discuss this with Lee. Well, Lee, I appreciate your question, and I think if you remember the way I answered that is O'Dowd's been hurt a lot, and he never has really, I don't believe, made it through an entire season. And, and, you know, when you have a young offensive line or whatever, you've got to have somebody that can make it through the season. And uh, he's been hurt a lot, and knee, a shoulder, this and that, and so on. And I don't really believe, and Lee, I hope your last name isn't O'Dowd, but, but I don't really think he's lived up to his expectations. And what I mean by that, he was such a highly publicized player coming out of high school. You know, you would think he'd come in and as a sophomore start. Now, I know Jeff Byers was there and other players were there and so on, and he had a tough time doing that. But when you come in that highly touted, you would think you'd play more and you'd get in there more. And 
but he's been hurt a lot and so on. And I don't think he's a great man blocker. When I watch one on one, when he when you cover his nose, you know he doesn't really have the ability or size or strength I think to knock someone off the ball. The only reason I mentioned Butch Lewis, I think you'd have maybe a better combination. Butch Lewis has great feet, just great feet. He's been around. He's played a lot of football. Uh, he's experienced and so on, and you've got to be able to make the calls and get out after somebody. And and, and I think he's a, a fabulous football and has a football player and has the potential of being a great center, not only in, in the college level but in the NFL level. So I'm just saying that you know, that that circumstance could happen. I'm not saying it's going to happen. It probably won't happen. But it would be something I would consider. But you want your five best players playing your five best players on the field as the offensive line learns to play together and if you get five people out there and one guy after one week or two guy leaves that combination because he's injured or something it messes it up so you want to go to your top five and hope you get through the season and uh, don't have any injuries which is a difficult thing to do but I just think he has the potential to do that. John Martinez, I have no idea why they moved him to guard. Uh, I thought he was going to be a center, too. Obviously, they feel that uh, maybe he doesn't have the feed or the ability to to play center in their scheme of things and so on, and maybe he has the same problems. Maybe, uh, maybe he's a better man blocker being covered up. Uh, because remember, when you play a guard, you're going to play against guys that are 6'1", 6'2", 310 pounds, 320 pounds, like, like a Casey and some of these other guys, baby, you better move, and you better be able to take somebody on and cut their penetra- uh, penetration down and be able to man block and so on. And So um, I have no idea, and uh, so I can't speculate or talk about that. But I just mentioned Lewis because I thought he is that type of player that could really play well at center. All right, Coach, thanks for that, and thanks, Lee, for the question there. Uh, I, You know, I'm expecting big things out of Chris O'Dowd this year. I mean, I think he did a really good job this spring. I mean, they didn't have the numbers. He had to take so many reps at center. I don't remember any kind of issues or prolonged issues with, uh, you know, problems with the snap. There's a couple when uh, Markowitz came in, a Markowitz would come in and, uh, and spell O'Dowd. But for the most part, I don't remember any kind of problems coming in with O'Dowd there. And I remember talking with, Coach Rule in the locker room after one of O'Dowd's first games his freshman year. And one of the things he really liked about what O'Dowd did is he picked up the offense quickly. He knew the calls. He was a good communicator with the rest of the line, even being a true freshman when he was kind of thrown in there playing early on in his career. And I think this, the having the new staff, you know, uh, James Craig, the new offensive line coach, I really am expecting big things. I expect him to be able to run the show on the offensive line. He's going to be the guy making the calls. Obviously, he has to stay healthy, but I do expect big things out of him. I think they can have a really good year on the offensive line, and with the direction the offense is going, I think they're going to run the ball with a couple different backs, try to keep things consistent. I think all of that could be could add up to a really good year for O'Dowd. Well, I hope so. I really do. I want that to happen. And basically, I wasn't suggesting that he not play. I was suggesting that I thought Butch Lewis would be an outstanding center if he needed to be, you know, play there. True. And we'll see. I mean, maybe Butch Lewis switches around. We, we got to see who gets healthy, too. I mean, Lewis was out the entire spring. Uh, you know, maybe he gets moved around. And, you know, when he becomes, when he goes for the NFL, maybe they like him as a center there. Who knows? That's definitely happened before. 
people get moved around, play different positions in college than they do in the pros. And uh, we got a, we got another question, Coach. Thank you for that one, Lee. Jack in uh, White House Station, New Jersey. Uh, now, according to Jack, it looks like Pac-10 is ha- Pac-10 Media Day is going to happen in New York. He said, "How cool is it having two media days with one in New York?" Coach Hyde and yourself must be ecstatic after bemoaning about the poor coverage the past few years. If you guys come out to the Big Apple, let me know. The beers are on me. Well, thank you very much for that offer, Jack. I don't believe there was any kind of formal announcement that says that the Pac-10 would have any of their media days in New York, but that's apparently what Jack is hearing. Coach, what have you heard? Well, I have not heard that. I have not heard that, and I'm pretty close to that. I know there's going to be some changes in the media day, and I think it's going to be pretty exciting on what's Larry Scott and the Pac-10 is doing. Larry Scott is very much aware of the lack of coverage of the Pac-10, and I think he's going to be making some changes that I think that will help the Pac-10. The Terminal Roses are certainly making some changes, too, in a lot of formats that they've been a part of. Like last year, they did such a great job with the Rose Bowl uh, Hall of Fame and and all of that, And, and, and everything is being looked at. Everything is being looked at in the Pac-10 as far as how can we become more out in front? How can we get out there and compete? We have a great product. Look, look at last weekend. Oh, really, look at last weekend, the Women's Water Polo Championships. Against who? The Pac-10. Two teams, Stanford and USC. And by the way, congratulations to the Women's Water Polo team for winning the national championship. So, you know, you've got to let people know that stuff. People don't realize how many national championships are won by the Pac-10. Right now, USC is leading today the, the women's uh, champ, national championship uh, playoffs in, in women's golf. That could happen. So, you know, it can't become a secret, you know, and the Pac-10 has got to let people know that they can compete. So they've got to get out there. They've got to go from a half-day media day, which it's been, and Ryan, you've been there. I see you there from something that goes like from 8 to 12, and it's over with, to a two-day event got to become a two-day event where the coaches and players can come into an area, spend time, give the media the amount of time they need for their taping and, and conversations and maybe have a social event like a golf tournament and allow everyone to be a part of the media and learn to get to meet these coaches and the Pac-10 representatives and so on. Uh, you, you go back to the Big, Big Ten, you go back down to the Southeastern Conference, and, heck, those coaches have half a morning with the media in a media day thing. It goes for three or four days with a big banquet at night. And I think that's something that's going to be looked at by the Pac-10. I'm not at liberty to tell you because I know what the changes are, but it's going to be very popular for the media in, uh, in the Pac-10, the way they're going to handle next year the Pac-10 media day. So, uh, yes, uh, but I haven't heard about it, and I don't think it's going to happen in New York. That I think what – what he might be thinking about is that they talked about the NFL draft having their first day in New York and the rest of it down at LA live. They would have to move the entire, uh, thing or facility to LA. Uh, but uh, that's what they've talked about. And remember these things happen when the money is there, they're not coming to LA live for nothing. They'd be coming there because someone would be paying their way to come to L.A. Live and guaranteeing them a certain amount of money, like sponsorship money, to be at L.A. Live, to bring the people out and promote L.A. Live a little more. And then they have those two beautiful hotels that are there, the Marriott and the Ritz-Carlton, where people would stay and mingle and and do different things. And and another thing, 
Also, L.A. is a place they might want to have a football team someday. And uh, this might be a promotional way, too, of bringing the draft back to L.A. Look how long it's been since the kids in L.A. have wondered who their number one draft choice is going to be this year. The kids growing up don't even... How many NFL jerseys do you see kids wearing around Los Angeles? Kids today don't even know about a professional team in Southern California. So it'd be a way, too, of helping promote the California, Southern California area if they bring the draft here for people getting ready for an NFL team if it happens. And who owns LA Live in that area down there and all of that? Well, the same guy that I think that's talking about building the stadium. Yeah, so he would. it's definitely in his best, Ed Roski's best, best interest to uh, try and get that going. Well, Coach, I just have one question for you. If they do a golf tournament, will you be in my foursome? You wouldn't want me in your foursome. <laughs> I mean, I would certainly take it as an honor, but you wouldn't want me in your foursome, okay. buddy. I'm the guy that meets you at the clubhouse, okay? All right, we'll have a drink. I'm the one that sits back, and when you come in, I say, how'd you do? Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll plan on having a drink. If they have a golf tournament, I am there, and we'll have a drink afterwards, 19th hole. It'll be great. I'll be around, buddy. I'll All be right. around. Well, Coach, thanks very much for joining us, and thanks to everyone out there for the questions. Again, podcast at uscfootball.com. We love to answer your questions. We'll try to get to them all, as we always do each and every week. And uh, thanks again, Coach, for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Ryan, very much. And thank you uh, for sending the questions in. It's great to try to answer these questions. Remember, these are only our opinion. Yeah, thanks to SCTickets.com for the sponsorship. We'll be back in 30 seconds talking with Dan Weber. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. We are back on the Peristyle Podcast, and it's been a couple of weeks, but now we get we are joined by uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. Dan, thanks for coming on the program. How are you doing? Hey, enjoy it, Ryan, very much. Uh, uh, glad to be back. Yeah, so, you know, we it's been a little crazy with the offseason going on. I'll give you a little break, you know, because you were working Thank so you. hard. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> hey, plus, you guys got so much recruiting stuff going. It's just unbelievable. I I, uh, I can't keep I read it. I can't imagine how you how, – uh, how uh, all of that recruiting uh, stuff, that's, uh, that's just kind of amazing, uh, uh, terrific, uh, interesting. And uh, plus, I think there's more of it this year. I, 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 it's obvious they're doing more things with, uh, uh, you know, in more places and going after more people. So it's kind of interesting to, to be able to keep up with that. But, man, there is a lot of, a lot of stuff out there. There is a lot of stuff, and I guess one of the biggest stories coming out, and I did a couple, actually a couple of Southern radio shows yesterday in anticipation for the uh, Real Sports on HBO, the, the interview with Lane Kiffin. I did a Knoxville radio station and Paul Feinbaum, who's like uh, syndicated, I think, throughout the South down there, and he's on satellite radio as well. But um, a lot of people wanted to talk about Lane Kiffin and the early reports came out. You were one of the guys that got one of the early copies of this uh, HBO Sports uh, report 
that said Lane Kiffin was making four million dollars a year, and then Monty Kiffin was making two million. Then they it seemed like they kind of backed off a little bit. But maybe kind of give your uh, your initial impressions when you saw the the story first that they sent to you. Well, uh, the first thing I thought was, man, are the people in Knoxville going to be unhappy about this story? I mean, it made them look. And, you know, I grew up in Kentucky, and I le- I really really liked the fans in Knoxville, the University of Tennessee people. I love their SID people. Uh, think it's basically a really class operation, but uh, by just showing you some of the things that that were involved with uh, with Wayne's leaving, uh, some of the language, some of the things that were painted on the the big rock on campus, some of the students, some of the fans with their uh, revised Rocky Top lyrics and what have you. I mean, uh, uh, I think, and you were on Paul Feinbaum's show, by the way. Uh, I don't know if you know the name of uh, how they bill that show. It's the F-bomb show, uh, <laughs> as uh, Paul likes to call it on his uh, intro into the show. Well, uh, some of the real sports last night could have been the F-bomb uh, uh, from Tennessee. And it just didn't, you know, if you watch that, you thought, Goodness, uh, no wonder uh, someone w- might want to turn their back and, and, and get out of there. Those folks look a little bit unhinged and unreasoning and, uh, and crazy. And, and they're not, as it turned out, that particular episode made them look like. But there are enough of them, and you could see why someone would say, if I've got my choice between living on the beach in Southern California and, and coaching at USC, Compared to to Knoxville and uh, the SEC, I might uh, I might come back home, uh, and uh, so that was my original thought. Was you know it, it it was kind of a throwaway line, and I really respect Andrea Kramer, and I think she's really really fair, and and she did a a, a remarkably fair job, and I thought turned the piece into more of a. Uh, a family piece about the Kiffins and the relationship between dad and son and uh, Layla, uh, Lane's wife and the kids and uh, the way Monty was kind of the, the you know, the, the guy who introduced uh, Lane to Layla and how that happened and, uh, and all the things that were involved in them getting out of town uh, and, and some of the really ugly stuff that, that kind of precipitated that. And I thought she did a really good job. I thought her line about Lane getting over $4 million was, was kind of a throwaway line that didn't really mean much. And it looked to me like it might have been the one place where Andrea was just reporting something that she'd heard from somebody who didn't really know. And it, it didn't seem – and then the next thing you see is this little line in the show becomes a big story at Yahoo or whoever, and then – even ESPN grabs it, turns it into a question of the day. Should Lane Kiffin and his father be making $6 million? And even though very soon thereafter they get the report from their own guy, Bruce Feldman, who we all know and respect and who lives out here, and, you know, Bruce had talked to somebody at USC who said, you know, good Lord, it's not even close to that. And we all, I think, knew that. I mean, why would USC pay Lane that much? they didn't have to pay Lane that much. It was pretty obvious that in a 20-minute conversation with Mike Garrett, uh, I, I had always gotten the impression that they virtually didn't need to talk salary. They would give him a little bit of a bump, uh, cost of living and things like that. 
and I know Monty had bought a house down there in Knoxville as well. I, I, one of the cute little lines in the thing is, I w- Lane, uh, Monty says about Lane, he said, I wish I'd have known he was going to take the USC job. I wouldn't have bought a house in Knoxville. Uh, <laughs> I'd have rented. it. And, and it was just, you know, it was those kinds of little things. But it was pretty obvious, I think, to all of us that, that um, you know, Lane uh, uh, hadn't, uh, you know, gotten – for, you know, for me, I mean, it just would make no sense. Pete, for example, and I had remembered uh, back at the Orange Bowl, they had, uh, right before that, they had renegotiated Pete's contract, and there was from then on almost no conversation about Pete's contract because they had really put in a very quietly kind of an escalator clause that his was tied into, you know, if, if Nick Saban came back and, and got this much money or Les Miles or whoever, uh, Mac Brown, Pete got more. And so uh, Pete's uh, contract, basically, once it got to the renegotiated uh, uh, contract uh, after the second uh, national championship, it just escalated based on other uh, other coaches' contracts. And uh, now that's obviously not the case with Lane, but but I think without a doubt, Lane got. I think he was getting 2.375 million uh, was the the exact figure at Tennessee counting everything and bonus and what have you. And I, there may still be some money tied up in, uh, in, uh, in, in the back and forth of, of his leaving after a year. But, but I would, I would, the guess would be a little more than that. And, and Monty was, you know, had, had maintained that one and a half million dollar a year salary that, that he had, um, uh, uh, was earning as a, uh, a coordinator in the NFL with a, which would be normal for somebody with his, his record and, and what have you. So I just don't get the sense that, you know, the people who uh, said that the two of them are, are making $6 million a year at USC. And then ESPN, though, even still was asking as their question of the day, should they be making, you know, $4 million for Lane and $6 million for the two of them, even though their own reporter had said, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, you could go on the same page where they said that's, exaggerated, it's inflated, it's not true. On the same page, they had a question that said, are they making too much, you know, making this uh, four and two million dollars a year? So I just think we're not going to know those numbers. Uh, and for all the energy that seemed to be uh, uh, wasted yesterday by people arguing about them, uh, it surprises me. I know people like to get into that kind of back and forth and get upset about stuff and what have you. But it's just, you know, you and I are not ever going to see that contract. And unless we do, we really can't know. USC doesn't have to tell us until I would guess in about three years, their um, IRS form 990 will have to be released. Uh, They usually are about two years later. And that's the one that, ha- that lists the five highest paid employees of uh, all uh, institutions that uh, are charitable uh, or nonprofit institutions. And that's where you could always find Pete's salary a couple of years later. Ah, uh, okay. And so USC, in a couple of years, will be able to know to some extent there are other ways in which guys can be paid that aren't exactly on that form 990 but you know pete was the highest paid employee at any private institution in the united states last year and 
whether Lane will be or not, because uh, you could go to Notre Dame, for example, Notre Dame's Form 990, and get that, and you could find out how much you know they're paying, uh, you know, Brian Kelly. I mean, if he's one of their five highest paid, which I'm, I'm guessing he will you would be. Think. <laughs> but, uh, it does. It surprises me how much people want to get involved in in all that, uh, uh, and, and arguing about things they can't possibly know about. Uh, it, it's it, it's a surprise. Yeah, and I think you know Bruce came out. I don't know if he gave an exact number, but um, no, I don't think he did. I, I and I think he said. I mean, I would be shocked if it's in the three million dollar range. Yeah, it's, it's closer I, I to two. Closer to two than four. Two million dollar range. Yeah, it would shock me. Yeah, so he's probably two and a half to two and three quarters, something in that, which is you know certainly respectable. And oh, he, he yeah. has a chance. And, and, and that's what USC should pay. If, if USC doesn't think its coach is worth that, probably he he might not be the right guy for USC. I mean, I just think you can't do it on the cheap, and yet there's no sense in, in spending it. I mean, I can't even imagine Lane, you know, would even think about asking for it. I mean, uh, you know, it it doesn't make any sense. And and one would think if it doesn't make any sense, it's probably not happening. Uh, you know, I just think you know, in one phone call. Uh, and everybody seems to agree on that, that there was basically one phone call. It took about 20 minutes, and Lane was hired. And at that point, I can't even imagine they're haggling over salary figures. I, it doesn't even sound like it would any, be anything Lane would even be pushing at that point. I think he wanted the job. He wanted to come here. And uh, he had realized that, you know, nothing else uh, – you know, would have um, would have mattered at that point, and they weren't going to lowball him. So, my guess would be, a, you know, something of a raise from uh, from the Tennessee figure, but nothing nothing out of Atlantic's. And so that would, yeah, as, as you said, that would put it somewhere between two and a half and, and three million. I would again be shocked if it was over three million dollars a year. It, it didn't need to be. Now, the 20-minute the comment, I think, is really interesting because of the way this whole thing went down. There was a lot of names on the board. And, you know, Lane Kiffin didn't really come up all that much. And I think some people might have assumed that it would that Tennessee would have had some kind of clause in there to keep him, if, if, you know, preventing him from going to USC, similar to what reportedly Steve Sarkeesian had in his contract up at Washington. At least that's what a lot of people were saying, that he probably had some clause in there that it would be a, a pretty big buyout if he came to USC. Obviously, that wasn't the case for Lane Kiffin at Tennessee. Um, but it did come out, you know, kind of it was a last-minute kind of thing. And the 20-minute conversation, I think, makes sense because it kind of it, it kind of makes sense just the way everything went down. It seemed like it happened really fast, and according to the report last night, it really did. I think without a doubt. I think that's absolutely true. I think everything about it was pretty much on the money, with the exception of, uh, of the dollar figure, which they revised downward from the rough uh, cut that they released to the, uh, the version that appeared on the air last night. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they gave themselves enough fudge factor that uh, they didn't have to be, uh, have to be exact. And so, uh, uh, but it, again, it, it, it isn't worth probably uh, arguing over uh, because we can't possibly know. I mean, I think eventually... We figured out where Pete was, uh, starting with about the um, the week of the Orange Bowl, my uh, Oklahoma game, 
And from then on, you could sort of calibrate it and calculate it. And by looking at what other people were making and all that, you always had the sense. And and I would guess that 4.4 million for Pete this last year is, is pretty darn close. So I think, you know, eventually you can get to the point where, uh, and especially with the next contract, I don't think the first contract is the one that you can uh, uh, you can go by, because I don't think anybody had had much of a sense on Pete's first contract what he was making. Uh, but I think on the second contract, that's and that's where people can tell you, no, he's going to make. I won't tell you exactly what he's making, but there's no coach in college football who's making any more. Well, okay, now you've got now you've located it because some of those guys, the next two, three, or four maybe, are at public schools with contracts that have to be public, and so you can locate where Pete was, for example. Well, we don't have that with Lane, so it's sheer guesswork. I mean, sheer guesswork that is not. I mean, it's it's not productive. I don't think to spend a whole lot of time trying to come down exactly with uh, with where Lane is, but it does tell you something about the media culture where people can report a story that they then find out is probably not true, and they still ask their question of the day about the uh, the numbers that they know aren't true, that their own reporting tells them that's not the right number, and they're still asking that as the question of the day. So I just think people should probably not let those kinds of things get them all riled up. It's uh, it's just not worth worth it. They couldn't possibly know, and we can't know. All we know is he makes more than us, Dan. Unfortunately, that's right. <laughs> and, he, and you know that job's going to pay a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of you know there's a lot of pressure uh, on that job. Uh, so you would expect that job to pay a lot. If it weren't, for example, if they would tell you that Lane was making. You know, as good as Mike Riley, you know, does at Oregon State, if somebody said Lane's making the same as Mike Riley, you would probably there, then you should probably get upset because you should say the coach at the University of Southern California should probably make more than the coach at Oregon State, no matter who the coach at Oregon State is or what his record is, the USC job should pay more. So... It isn't so much it's Lane, it's just it's the USC job. You, you, can't not, you can't not spend that kind of money. There are certain jobs in America that you have to have. I mean, when, when Joe Paterno leaves Penn State, I'm hoping they don't go out and try to get a bargain hire at, you know, at Penn State. Or when Jim Trussell retires at Ohio State or Mac Brown at Texas, they better not try to hire the next guy at a really low ball figure. I mean, there are some jobs that you have to have a guy who can command that kind of money. Now, that's the interesting thing. Lane Kiffin has a resume that no one's ever seen before in the history of coaching. I mean, at his, to be at 35 and to be on your third job in three years, and the first one was in the NFL as a head coach, and the next one was at the University of Tennessee – uh, with a 107,000-seat stadium, and then the third job is at USC, you can't compare that to anybody. I mean, that's a one-of-a-kind resume that will probably never be um, equaled in our lifetimes uh, in terms of – it's inexplicable. I mean, it's, there's no way you can, 
you know, say that it, it compares to anybody's. It's absolutely one of a kind. And uh, so I think Lane's next contract will be more reflective of, of the market and where everything stands and his own abilities and all of that. This contract, whatever it is, you can say it's too much or too little or however it is. It, it, it just, it's, it's just a starting point. And I don't think it matters all that much. But so my guess is, and I think what makes the most sense is it's a little more than he was making at Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that Ted Miller at ESPN.com blog, he did the interesting thing I thought is that he used those uh, salary calculators or cost of living calculators when you, if you go from one part of the country to another. And he actually came up with the fact that the cost of living in LA is 94% higher than the cost of living in Knoxville. So he said that based on the $2.375 million that Lane was making at Tennessee to equal that in terms of cost of living, he would have needed more than four and a half million dollars in salary from Tennessee (laughs) to equal in terms of cost of living. Now, okay. I'm sure when you get to that territory, there are some things that, skew those numbers, but I thought Ted had, and I think mostly what Ted was doing was just kind of making fun of the numbers in terms of, you can't possibly know, you know, what all went into, went into that stuff. Uh, I just think Lane's being taken care of fairly and uh, if he does his job, uh, he'll be rewarded comparably to all the best jobs in the country. And and maybe, you know, he may may end up making the most. I don't think he is now though. Well, Dan, always good stuff. Thanks. I'm glad you got to get that advanced copy and then compare it to the uh, the real show that came on HBO last night. But thanks again for joining us, and hopefully we'll have you on again next week. Okay, and I, I, I ask you a follow-up question very quickly. Oh, uh, sure. How did the Knoxville folks, you were on the Knoxville radio uh, show, how were they anticipating the show was going to go? Uh, did you know, they, they have a sense? They didn't really talk about I I was expecting that. They didn't talk about the show all that much. They were pretty cordial to me i've been on down there before uh paul feinbaum actually had the most interesting interesting thing to say is at the end we talked about the the riff you know the u.s the tennessee fans have against usc and i told them that my fiance went to tennessee and i hope that you know that 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 can be repaired over the you know maybe over the next few years that can get better and and paul who's actually a ut grad said yeah maybe over the next hundred years <laughs> so, so yeah there's still some bitter feelings there <laughs> It is amazing because, and I didn't really realize your fiance had gone to Tennessee. I mean, I really compared to a lot of the places in the SEC. Tennessee people were really uh, pretty uh, level-headed and mild-mannered, and uh, and uh, aren't quite as around the bend. Uh, and you know, there is another world out there besides uh, college football. Unfortunately for Lane, on that day. There was not, nope. there wasn't anything else other than college football, and uh, and uh, they they seemed to go around the bend. But uh, yeah, Paul, I didn't know Paul was a, a Tennessee graduate. That's uh, it's interesting. He does a great job. He's really uh, he's really wired in, and I think he really gets it. Um, he gets college football. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Dan, and we'll uh, talk to you next week. Okay. Thanks, Ryan. All See right. ya. Bye. Everyone else, back in thirty seconds, talking recruiting with Gerard Martinez. You are listening to the Peristyle Podcast from Los Angeles, California. 
AUSC Trojan fans to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network. It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We are joined by uscfootball.com recruiting analyst and my partner in crime up in the Bay Bay Area over the weekend, Gerard Martinez. What's up, Gerard? There were no crimes committed in the Bay Area (laughs) this weekend. No, we were pretty mellow, but we did went up for the uh, Stanford Nike camp, the Nike camp up there in Palo Alto. So we'll have a little report and what we saw up there from that. But I think first we want to talk. Well, let's you know, actually, we have a question first, Gerard. It's kind of a quick one uh, regarding there was a big offensive defensive lineman kid that USC had a commitment from for 2010. This is from George. He thinks he's from one of the L.A. schools. I believe USC had him up until signing day. What happened? I think he's referring to Dakota Smith, 6'8", 380 pounds. Um, was committed to USC, one of the early commitments. Actually, he might have been the first commitment of last year's class. And um, what happened to him were uh, a multitude of different factors. Um, first and foremost, you know, his grades um, ended up slipping. Um, I think, you know, and this is me kind of reading into the situation a little bit more than anything – I kind of feel like maybe football just wasn't for him. I think, you know, he, he was the son of Tody Smith, who played for USC, uh, played for the Rams, uh, one of the original Wild Bunch members. Um, a lot of people look at a kid that big and, that you know, they think, oh, my goodness, he's got to be a football player. He's got to play football. That's where his future is. And, you know, that may be true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, 17, 18-year-old uh, young man wants to uh, take that on, you know, wants to accept that. And I think with him, there was a lot of questions coming from, his high school coaches and the people that were around the Westchester program in which he played at, uh, just his hunger and his, you know, uh, desire to play football on a division one, on a division one level. A lot of people have to realize that there's a lot of sacrifices that you have to make in order to play football in college. It's not easy. It's not one of those things where you can go to a school like USC and, uh, you know, you're going to have um, all the time in the world to study for your tests and you're going to have football. I mean, it's a full-time 365-day type thing. And, you know, some kids are just not up for it. And I think a lot of people just assumed that uh, Dakota wanted to play football and would play football. And I think that was, you know, maybe the, to the detriment um, of him uh, actually going forth his senior year and uh, living up to, you know, what a lot of people put on him as potential. So that's kind of what I think happened. Um, I don't really know where he ended up, uh, but uh, it just was a really unceremonious departure from the 2010 class. And, um, you know, he came in went without really any announcement of sorts. He was really hard to get a hold of um, past the summer and, and keep in contact with uh, that much. And, and like I said, it's a really odd story just because, you know, grades were one of the big issues for him um, coming down the stretch of uh, the, the recruiting process. 
but he started out his high school career with a 4.0 at Westchester High School. He was a good student, and he was a smart kid, and a guy that, uh, you know, talking to him was a, was an articulate kid and came from a good family. Um, I just think it's one of those things. Maybe he just didn't have the will to play football. He wanted to do other things, and you know what? It's okay. Just because you're 6'8", you know, 350, 380, uh, doesn't mean you have to play football, and uh, I, I think that maybe he was uh, rebelling a little bit against that, but you never know. Maybe he comes through and goes to junior college or ends up somewhere else and starts playing football again and all of a sudden the, the light goes on and he feels like he does want to play it, you know, and that can happen too. So we'll, we'll see. We'll try to keep our ear to ground um, for him and, and to see if, the you know, there's any future with him and, and USC or just, you know, college football in general. All right. Well, we wish Dak Smith well. George, thank you for that question. Uh, let's get to some of the exciting news. that ha- There's a lot of recruiting stuff going on, Gerard. It's May, May evaluation period. Always this uh, fun things going on. Victor Blackwell, the uh, great wide receiver out of Modern Day High School. Uh, he was one of those guys that you know we were waiting to see when he was going to get that offer. Were they going to? Were the coaches going to wait until the summer camps and evaluate him in person? But you know he got you know he got the call. He got his offer. He committed. He is now a Trojan. He's one of the verbal commitments for USC. What are your thoughts on the whole Victor Blackwell situation? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting scholarship offer just because a lot of people are looking at uh, all the receivers that they took in last year's class. They got three receivers, and um, you know, a lot of people felt like maybe Dylan Baxter could be a guy that could also play receiver. I think at this point, we realize Dylan Baxter's probably going to play running back, and I yeah. think with the depth at running back and the issues at running back, uh, including you know DJ Morgan coming off an ACL injury. He's going to have to be there and be the guy at running back. So you've got three guys coming in, Marquise Ambles, uh, Robert Woods uh, are coming in in June 20th here, um, which is very soon, and you have Kyle Prater already on campus. So those three guys are in place. But USC loses uh, a, a large group of receivers from this class. Um, guys are going to be seniors next year. And a couple of those guys have moved to tight end, but you still look at them as being you know, recruited receivers. So when you're recruiting you know, to, to have some depth, um, Quantity-wise, you're still looking maybe to get two, three guys in this class. I think two was kind of a for sure. Um, everybody knows that uh, USC was targeting uh, George Farmer early on and kind of was like the number one guy. Um, that continues. Uh, but uh, now with, with Blackwell, it's uh, another local guy that really liked USC and, and, and was a guy that would come in on the spot early in the process, but the scholarship offer came a little later. They wanted to evaluate him a little more, I think kind of see where he fit into the grand scheme of things for them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think you have to really give a lot of credit to Ed Orgeron on this again because he closed on this one. I, I think Victor Blackwell uh, for the last couple months really wasn't feeling USC because of the slow process of getting a scholarship offer you know he had other scholarships from UCLA and uh, a few other Pac-10 schools and they were loving him up a lot and he was getting some love from out-of-state schools and uh, he was concentrating on those but uh, USC came and um, you know offered him a scholarship this weekend he he was actually uh, (laughs) up at a track meet so you know the the process of actually making the decision you know was a little, little more hesitant um, and went back and forth with his family, and we talked to him actually uh, that Saturday when he uh, when he got the offer and talked to his family, and you could see that they were just trying to figure things out and, and didn't want to be impulsive about it. But uh, you know, just uh, Monday night, um, he, he just, you know he just decided, you know what, this is really everything I wanted. You know, whether it comes now or or, or came later or sooner, it's still the, the opportunity that I wanted, and and he wanted to stay close to home, and um, you know he's got a lot of boys 
there that uh, are looking at USC. I mean, Max Wittick, the uh, 6'4", 215-pound uh, quarterback that's uh, the starter at Modern Day right now, um, who's already committed to USC, and he's very close with Max. And uh, Jordan Jones-Payton, who's a 2012 wide receiver uh, commitment for USC. Uh, Victor Blackwell knows him. And obviously his godbrother, uh, DeAnthony Thomas, who's one of the best uh, players, targets, whether you're talking about him being a running back uh, prospect or you're talking about maybe being a corner prospect in the 2011 class. Uh, he's also very much interested in USC. And I think uh, Blackwell's commitment and just the timing of things um, is going to impact uh, DeAnthony Thomas as well. So, you know, that there's a lot of uh, chemistry. There's a lot of ties. There's um, a lot of uh, connections there in, in that class. And you can look at it and say, well, you know what, this is one step for USC to kind of move towards building the foundation of this incoming class. Um, and you can always have that with uh, each class. You always have that four, five guys that seem to know each other, that really have a bond, and that strengthens the class. Because now as we see, you know, as each year goes on, it, it becomes more and more uh, predominant. There's a lot of decommitments. There's a lot of swing and movement that goes on later in the year. If you're able to build a class where guys are tight and they want to play with each other and they want to play for each other before they even get on campus, you have less uh, worry with decommitments when you get into January um, and uh, you know signing day, which is February. So this was a it was a big move for USC. Um, it's not you know impossible, like I said, that uh, they still go after two more receivers in this class. Uh, but Blackwell is a guy that um, you know uh, he brings a lot to the table. He's a guy that has been a three-year starter at Modern Day, caught balls from Matt Barkley, is a tremendous kick returner, and I think that's the one added value when you look at some of the other guys that they're recruiting. Uh, Victor Blackwell can, is a legitimate uh, kick returner and a special teams threat um, that uh, is able to be productive in that facet of the game. So that gives you a little added value for a guy like that. He's a guy that you know can also get a little yak yards and stuff. So he's you know been productive on the highest level of high school football in Southern California, and I think that uh, you can't overlook that fact. You can never overlook a guy that's just flat out a good player and in the big games produces. Um, you can put all the stats and 40 times and all that together, but at the end of the day, I mean, that's what he has on his resume. So it's a big get for USC, and like I said, it's a big get in a lot of different reasons, uh, a lot of different perspectives on this thing. There's going to be some angles played, and, and we'll see you know, how USC is basically able to jockey themselves uh, with other recruits because of uh, their commitment of a guy like Blackwell and, uh, and Wittick. All right, we're talking with Gerard Martinez, uscfootball.com recruiting analyst. If you have any recruiting questions, you can always send them in, podcast at uscfootball.com. We love to answer all your questions on recruiting, and there's been a lot going on, obviously. Uh, we talked about Blackwell and that kind of uh, Three Musketeers thing with Max Wittick and uh, the Black Mamba, DeAnthony Thomas. Well, USC went after another quarterback, which was a little bit of a surprise. Cody Kessler uh, got an offer over, I believe it was over the weekend, right, Saturday morning. Uh, he ended up getting a USC offer. They got an offer from UCLA later in the day. He went up to the Bay Area for the Elite 11 quarterback camp that was held on the Cal Berkeley campus, was scheduled to be at the Stanford Nike camp where we were on Sunday, but I got to talk to him on Sunday. He said, you know, we just had to drive back home. He had a lot on his mind. He was kind of ready to make a college decision, and uh, then USC comes out with the offer. UCLA comes out with the offer, so it kind of threw his – whole decision process. He said he had to start. He told me he had to start all over again because of that. Uh, but it sounds like something could pop fairly soon with him and his commitment. At least he could cut it down to three schools. And he has some big time offers, Alabama, Nebraska, um, Pittsburgh, 
Boise State. I mean, there's a lot of schools and a lot of the Pac- Washington stuff like that guys have offered him. Now he has the USC and UCLA offer. He'd really like to be close to home, be able to see his little brother who's 10 years old. At least that's what he told me during the interview on Saturday. Uh, we would have liked to see him at the Nike camp, but he had a really good showing at the Elite 11 quarterback camp. We actually put up an amp piece, an amp video piece, where you can see him throwing the ball. I mean, just really nice. It just looks like he has a great touch on the deep balls. All the balls look like spirals. Um, the, the guys that we talked to with their Elite 11 camp said he just performed really, really well. And obviously he helped himself with those two new scholarship offers. But, Gerard, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on Kessler and, and the fact that, you know, they've already got a commitment from Max Wittick. Is it a surprise that they're going to try to get two quarterbacks for this class? You know, we talked about it uh, a little bit at length in the last podcast. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, other tangibles that come in with this. You know, you have to look at the current roster and you have to kind of get a feel for what the quarterback position is going to be there. And you also have to look at, you know, whether Wedick and Kessler are actually two guys that are going to be able to sign in the same class. I mean, does USC really want both guys? You know, they can offer Kessler and, and get his commitment, and maybe at the end of the day they just go and see who has the better senior season and um, maybe somebody decommits. It happened before uh, USC had the uh, commitment um, from Marin Corp. And then they also had a commitment from uh, Samson Sakachi. And as it went down the line and the process uh, continued towards signing day, uh, Samson Sakachi decided that uh, he wanted to decommit from USC and go to Arizona State. So it could be another situation like that. You, you never really know what's going to happen. Was it a surprise? You know, I think with Kessler and just in terms of his play here towards the end of spring, not really. I've talked to more people who have seen him in person He's really, really kind of separated himself as one of the elite quarterbacks in this class. And I think, uh, you know, probably the best example of that is the fact that uh, he was offered an Army All-American bid, um, a nomination, and uh, an actual selection from his performance um, here at the Elite 11 uh, regional workout just this past weekend. So that goes to show you the guy is that impressive. Um, and and he, I think the knock on him early on was just size-wise. He wasn't the tallest quarterback. He's probably about six one and a half, six two. Uh, he's definitely bulked up this year and gotten stronger, and he looks uh, like a much more fit, uh, mobile, athletic-type quarterback. Um, but he's definitely pro-style guy um, and has just a tremendous amount of gifts uh, and starts throwing the ball. We saw him early last year at the Rising Stars camp, and truth be told, he was the best, most proficient quarterback at that camp. And that camp also had Jesse Scroggins there. Uh, you had Weddick, who was just coming from uh, you know the East Coast and really was kind of getting his bearings. You know, we saw him later on there uh, playing in the passing league at the Edison Seven on Seven, where he wasn't even a full-time starter. Uh, but you know, if you're going to look at guys and you're just going to put them head to head, Evan Crowler, there was a lot of guys there at that camp, and you know, really, Kessler was the best guy that we saw. He, he was the guy that was the most accurate. He just seemed to be the most proficient. And USC's definitely seen that with his film, and they seem very excited about him. A lot of people that have seen him seem to be very excited about him. We talked to the people uh, who shot a lot of the ant video, a lot of our production guys who came out for it, and they were all thinking, man, you know, the latest guy that USC offered and you know what? He might be the best guy. He might end up actually being the best quarterback. Now, you know, 
the newest offer is always the most intriguing, and everybody kind of forgets about Wittick. You know, Wittick is a little different in that Wittick is definitely that pro-style quarterback, 6'4", 215. He's a big boy. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, has a little bit of that tight end look. He's a big kid, He and he's going to sit in that pocket, and he's got a big arm. Um, you know, Kessler's a little more uh, of, of a game manager, a guy that can really pick apart uh, a defense from underneath, um, seems to have a really good vision, really cerebral. Uh, and like I said, you know, a lot of people were really remarking it. He looked like a, a, a Tim Tebow-type quarterback when he came into the Elite 11 workout because he was just so buffed up. I mean, they were just surprised at how much muscle mass he had gained uh, over the past year. So it's intriguing. I mean, it's, it's, you know, a little bit of a surprise, but then a little bit of expectations that, you know, USC was still recruiting quarterbacks. They were still evaluating quarterbacks. Uh, and, again, you know, maybe they take two. Maybe this is just the deal where they go ahead and let these guys kind of play a little bit of game of uh, chicken here <laughs> as the recruiting process comes in. And uh, we get down into the the January and uh, in the February, and maybe there's one guy only ends up being the guy that commits the USC and signs. You know, I, I'm really looking forward to the Rising Stars camp when you're going to have two guys that potentially could be, you know, competing for one spot like you were talking about, or, you know, they're just trying to compete to, you know, who's going to get the leg up when they come to USC. And, and um, for Kessler, he already said he would be a, a, an early graduate, so he'll be able to compete in the spring similar to what, Matt Barkley did, and uh, he, he seemed to have a lot of confidence in his abilities and the fact that he could get some early playing time there. But for that, that, I think for me, that just makes the Rising Stars camp all that more interesting, just watching those two quarterbacks go at it. And that's if Kessler you know, commits to USC. It sounds like he wants to make a decision before that point. So obviously if he doesn't commit to USC, he won't be at the Rising Stars camp. True, yeah. And it, this point, kind of the talk, it seems like it's going to be a USC-Washington battle. Um, from what I'm understanding, he was really close to just going ahead and committing to Washington before USC uh, came in with that offer. So uh, Cal just picked up uh, a commitment from Kyle Bowman, who's a quarterback from up north. And so they've kind of taken themselves evidently you know, out of the race. Um, it doesn't seem like UCLA is really in it. So the feel right now, it's, you know, it's still a Washington-USC type deal. Uh, but obviously USC, the offer was big enough that it actually you know, kind of put the brakes on his commitment yeah. to uh, you know, being a Husky. Yeah, it kind of shook up his world a little bit. All right, well, we don't have a ton of time, but I want to go through some of the guys we saw at the Stanford Nike camp. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll mention a name and you can give a couple sentences on, on the kid. Is that cool? Yeah, that's cool. We'll do rapid fire. All right. Rapid fire. One of the guys. So we're getting, we're putting up video. We put up video of the offensive defensive lineman. We'll get up some defensive back video video. Those were the kind of three main positions that we'll focus on. We'll talk about a few other players, but we'll start off with defensive backs. Uh, T Shepard kid that kind of came out of nowhere, 2012 central East in Fresno, California. Uh, we didn't get much footage of him because we didn't really know, you know, we didn't really realize how good he was until after the camp. What did you think about him? Uh, really tremendous. I mean, he was one of the best overall players at the camp. Uh, a guy that uh, really long, rangy, great leap. Uh, he has that kind of, uh, you know, tree frog mentality when the ball is in the air. I mean, a guy that kind of, you just don't realize how long he is until he makes that leap and gets his gets his hands in the air and he becomes you know ten times as long <laughs> as he really yeah. is when you're just watching him running. So he's real springy. Um, like I said, uh, definitely a guy that's got great size, six one, one eighty. But he's not that kind of oh he might be a safety type cornerback. He's definitely a cornerback. He's definitely quick, fluid hips. Um, but 
I think the really impressive part about him is just his aggressiveness, his awareness with the ball in the air. That was really what stood out to everybody. Uh, and he's got really good technique. He's working with Tony Perry, who's just a, a renowned kind of legend, uh, defensive back guru who used to be at Edison High School in Fresno for many years, working with Tim McDonald. Um, he's kind of gone off and done his own thing at College of Sequoias. And uh, it looks like right now uh, Shepard's going to be one of his uh, next protégés. All right, how about James Sample, one of the many athletes from uh, Grant High School in Sacramento, 2011 safety. Yeah, Grant came in and they were loaded. Uh, they brought a lot of top athletes in there. You got to think, man, their defense is going to be really tough yeah. uh, to score against next year because they got guys all over the field. Uh, Sample was a little lethargic. Um, I think uh, underwhelming would be a word to, to put it. Uh, but you know what? You can't put too much stock, I think, in a camp that's non contact when you're talking about guys coming from a program like Grant, which is really physical, really tough. You don't get to see that part of their game in a camp like that. So they sometimes look a little lost. You know, they're out there playing in space. And you don't get to see them, you know, really get the hits and get into that rhythm which they play with on tape because Sample is really a guy that stands out a lot on tape. Um, looked like he had good speed, uh, but we just didn't really see much in terms of ball awareness, um, in terms of, you know, making any real plays with the football in the air. So that was kind of the thing that, you know, we wish we would have seen a little more of. But again, uh, I think with all the great guys, the common theme is just, you know what, it's not a full contact camp, and those guys really excel at full contact. Well, okay, one of his teammates, Shaq Thompson, 2012 uh, defensive back. Shaq stood out just because of how big he is. Yeah. Uh, he's the he's younger brother of Sinquan Thompson. <laughs> Sinquan Thompson is only about 5'9", 180 pounds. Uh, Shaq is already a good almost 6'2", uh, probably about 190 pounds himself. Really long, rangy. He was playing cornerback, but unlike Shepard, is a guy that you look at and go, he might end up being a free safety. We didn't get to see a lot of his straight line speed, and I think that's going to have a lot to do with whether he plays corner or not. But he was pretty fluid with his hips, pretty agile, had good feet, um, really long arms, a lot of good things from him. Uh, obviously, you got to think with, with Cal and the connections there, uh, they probably got an early start on him. But he's a guy that I think is going to end up being a guy with uh, scholarship offers in the Pac-10 and probably even outside of the Pac-10. He'll be a guy that's going to get looks uh, probably even as far as from the SEC. All right, we'll see what happens with him. Josh Atkinson uh, from Granada High School, 2011. He played mostly corner, I believe. Yeah, and he, he looked good. Um, sometimes kind of I, I think that uh, that word stiff kind of slips off the tongue. It's a little bit of a scout speak. Um, but really with him, I think the issues uh, with him playing off, um, man off, maybe seven yards, 12 yards, that's where he kind of struggled a little bit. He kind of seemed to lock up sometimes uh, on his breaks, and I think it was more of a mental thing where he was overthinking, really trying a little too hard sometimes to make a play on the ball. But when he got up in press coverage and was able to control uh, the wide receiver from the line of scrimmage he was really good and he's fast and I think the one thing that's you know intriguing everybody about him right now he's running consistent 10-6 times he just came off uh, one of the uh, valley tournaments up there uh, big track meet where he ran a 10-6-6 and I think was an official time those are great times for a guy that's six foot you know, 175 pounds, and obviously, you know, when you're recruiting Joshua, you got to look at his brother George. George didn't participate in the camp because he was hurt. He hurt his hamstring actually in track. Sounds like he's done for the track season, but, you know, George, you've got his 6'2", 195, 10'6", 1 at the Arcadia Invitational, and now you're looking at a guy uh, like Joshua who's six foot, you know, 180 pounds, and he's running a 10'6'6". That's a nice duo to have, so I think that's the intriguing part about them. USC went to go see him last week. 
they're talking about maybe offering Joshua too. I think if they offer both guys, it's going to be interesting to see if they're able to hold out because it sounds like they like USC a lot, but, you know, how they fit into the system. Joshua would be the corner. They're recruiting George as a receiver, and we've talked about the receiver position already. I don't know. I mean, how, how many receivers do you take? Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and does George continue to be recruited as a, a receiver? All right. Well, we're we're really uh, short on time, so try to wrap it. We'll try to wrap it. Fire the last couple here, real quick. Uh, how about it's Vegas? oozy time? It's oozy time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's not. We don't have a super time limit, but we just don't want the podcast to go on too long. We don't like people have to download the, the bigger file. But uh, V Moala from Grand High School, defensive tackle. V, um, you know, another guy that just a red guy that kind of was a little overwhelming. Kind of seemed like he kind of coasted through some of the drills. Um, I think in terms of you know the intensity and the energy of the camp. The talent was on the offensive and defensive lines, but we just didn't really get to see those guys go after it very much. So, uh, you know, again, kind of a, a physical guy that does a lot of great things on film. We just didn't get to see him dominate very much. And, uh, you know, I guess that's really the truth with the two top defensive tackles maybe on the West Coast. Antoine Woods kind of had the same thing at, uh, at Los Angeles at the night yeah. camp. He wasn't necessarily dominant either. So, you know, I think the one thing about uh, V is that he's – got a lot better body weight. He's a 326-pound guy that still looks like he's in pretty good shape. He's not real sloppy, and he's got quickness, and he's got good feet. So um, you know, physically didn't really see anything that we didn't know about him. Uh, but, yeah, it was kind of disappointing because you were hoping maybe he would dominate uh, the offensive line, which really didn't have many guys that were marquee guys there. No, true. And, uh, you know, they didn't get a lot of reps. There were so many defensive linemen at the camp, and, and unfortunately – the one-on-one drill, which everyone loves to see, went a little slow. So uh, we didn't get to see some of the guys like Eric Armstead get a, get a lot of uh, reps and stuff like that. He's a 2012 kid from Pleasant Grove, and his brother obviously is on the team. And Pukalopa didn't get many reps, but, man, he just looked like a super rush end coming off. I mean, it was he was pretty impressive coming off. They just showed a lot of speed. Uh, but let's talk about a couple offensive linemen real quick if we can. Uh, Jordan Rigsby. Probably the most solid lineman in the whole camp uh, from Pleasant Valley, 2011 kid. Yeah, Jordan Rigsby, really pretty good-looking player. I mean, a guy that USC is going to really have to look at. It's a little bit of a down year with offensive linemen on the West Coast, and he's one of those guys that, you know, again, pretty good body weight, got good size, runs pretty well. You can see he's a coachable kid. You know, the coaches were saying things to him, and he was getting it. He was really understanding and, and changing his game as they asked him to. Um, that's a big deal on the offensive line you got to have some guys that are pretty smart there sometimes and make some different calls on the line of scrimmage. And he seemed to be kind of one of those guys. So he kind of stood out in terms of just being a guy that had that athleticism and really wasn't too sloppy in terms of, you know, maybe too much bad body weight. Not a guy you have to bring in the program and you're going to have to sit him on the, you know, the bench for two years and put him in the training program to just to be able to, you know, get him to play a full game because he's going to be tired. He looked like he was pretty good in terms of uh, his uh, being in shape. And, again, Speed, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty powerful. Um, didn't get beat too bad, but again, you know, we saw limited reps, so it wasn't necessarily like we saw, you know, him go against a whole bunch of different guys out there. Right, and then uh, you can actually check him out. We got a lot of reps from him up on the website. You can uh, check out uscfootball.com for that. Last one, uh, 2012 kid, probably the best looking offensive lineman there, Freddie Tagaloa. Freddie is one of the best offensive linemen we've seen. Uh, in terms of physical build since Tyron Smith, he probably looks better than Tyron Smith from an offensive line standpoint because he's 6'7", and he's 304 pounds, and he looks like he's 260. Uh, just really, really impressive-looking kid, and you don't have to bulk him up a whole lot. I mean, he's a sophomore, going to be junior. 
that looks the part right now and is playing at that weight. He early in the uh, workouts, he was actually just kind of messing around, warming up, and running some receiver drills with uh, Dylan Vanderwall, the tight end from Oaks Christian. And he actually caught the ball and looked like he could get away with playing tight end at six seven, three hundred pounds. He was that athletic, and I think the one thing that stood out to me. You know, just kind of watching him. He looked good. You know, he's very young, technically, technically, you know, not very advanced kind of guy. But when I talked to him afterwards, he was one of the most articulate sophomores that I've ever talked to. I mean, he's got offers from Stanford, Cal, UCLA, Arizona State. He already has a plan. He understands, you know, what the recruiting process is going to bring, what he needs to look for in schools, what his priorities need to be. Just incredibly articulate, very smart young man, very humble, uh, really impressed with just his personality. He's going to be a guy USC offers. They're going to be after him hard. It's going to be hard to get him away from that Bay Area, I think, and, and get him away from the Stanfords and the Cows. And he's already kind of leaning towards Stanford. And I could see just with, uh, with just talking to him, you know, he's going to be a guy that really, really appreciates the academics and the, the degree uh, of Stanford. And, and USC is going to have to really come after him hard with the football angle and, uh, and just the combination, you know, with academics and, and scholastics and, and athletics just at USC to kind of, you know, give him something to think about. But he seems pretty set on those Bay Area schools already. But, wow, what an impressive kid to talk to. He's, uh, he's going to be a real good one here uh, coming up next year. All right. Well, we try to keep it 20 minutes. Went about 28 or whatever. That's okay. We we'll love to talk recruiting and uh, check out uscfootball.com. We've got tons of updates going on. We've got three, four, five things going up every day because there's so much recruiting going on in the month of May. There's never an off season, Gerard. It's a blitz. It's yeah. a recruiting blitz. All right. Well, yeah, we'll have a lot more videos from the Nike campus stuff going up as well. Check it out. We'll have interviews with a lot of the players so you can, we're all over it. We check it all out. So you can see some of those top athletes from the Bay area that are on USC's radar. We talked about all them. And Gerard, thanks again for joining us. We'll uh, talk to you again next week. Thank you for having me. It was fun, guys. Yeah, awesome. Everyone else, you're listening to the Peristyle Podcast. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week. We'll have another show. Thank you. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.